1: April Voki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Karen Brooks is a guide and outfitter based in Tasmania, Australia. She and her husband, Peter, share a unique story in that they both started guiding later in life upon finding matching drift boats for sale in North America. On this episode of Anchored, Karen and I enjoy a lighthearted conversation about fishing for trout in Tasmania, lock style fishing, what it's like to start over, and more. Also, exciting news. We've just finished editing a bunch of Anchored Outdoors masterclasses. It's been crazy around here, including Jet Boating with Grant Wildridge, Wilderness Survival with Tom Brown III, raft Fishing with Yost Gladstone, and more. I will include the link to all of our masterclasses in the write-up of this episode. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Great Fishing Adventures of Australia. The diversity of Australia's fishing experiences is as vast as the country itself. Great Fishing Adventures of Australia is the catch of Australia's best fishing operators that have come together to collectively raise the profile of Australia as a world-class fishing destination. No matter what the season, Australia offers enthusiasts the opportunity to indulge in their passion and experience some of the world's very best fishing, amongst some of the most naturally spectacular environments the world has to offer. Discover your next fishing adventure by visiting Australia.com forward slash fishing.
2: I was born in Mornington on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria and Australia. I grew up there with a background of really horse riding. So I was very much an outdoors girl and um, had my, started off with my little Shetland pony and then progressed into others and sort of got into a bit of competition and that sort of thing. So which was, yeah, really kept me, you know, in the outdoors. And then from there on, I sort of got into bushwalking and hiking, that sort of thing. So I did a lot of hikes around Victoria and up in the high country and in Tasmania. So I guess by the time I was introduced to fly fishing, it was sort of an easy step because it was like bushwalking with a purpose. Um, (laughs) where There was a reason to go and to find all these beautiful places. So they were my early years.
1: So for people who are listening right now in North America who might not understand the layout of Australia, which is understandable, uh, you know, you have to take either a ferry or a plane to Tasmania. It's not attached to the mainland where, where you were born. So how did you get over there? Was it a family thing?
2: Uh, yes. So I actually lived in, in Victoria for in, in those early years. Like I was introduced to fly fishing about 25 years ago by my now husband and we fished all around victoria fished all the little little mountain streams and we'd head off for the weekend we had a very hectic uh work life at that stage we had a flower export business in based in melbourne which was full on so by the time we got to the weekends we would do a flower market a pick up of flowers from the the flower market in melbourne and drop everything back in our cool room, and then race off up to the Stevenson River, which was about an hour's drive, hour and a half's drive from the city. And um, that was like our escape from our busy work life. Um, it was like the, the place that I could let all of those worries of the week go. I'd sort of, you know, transform me just into a normal person. So <laughs> it was amazing. This is a weird question, but how old were you when you started fly fishing? I was about in my late thirties. Right. So, yeah, so very, very late getting into fly fishing. I had done a little bit of, you know, uh, well, fishing with my dad off the beach and spin fishing and things like that, but not fly fishing. So I was very late getting into fly fishing, um, but it certainly took me by storm and I was, yeah, became very passionate about it and totally involved. So it sort of ruled the re- the, the latter part of my life. Right and i'm just sorry i didn't learn earlier. <laughs> right. So so you basically
1: roam around, you're fishing everywhere. Now i'm assuming Tasmania was more of just recreation. You, you you weren't living there, is that right? You were just going there to fish?
2: Yeah, yeah. We would just head down there just for, you know, a weekend here and there and, you know, in between work and life and that sort of thing. Um, but really, fell in love with Tasmania.
1: It, it feels small for some reason, you know. It's almost like you can yes. you can fly to Launceston or you can fly to Hobart, and then within what two hours be on from one end yep. to the other. Yep. But then, exactly in between, there's just all this beautiful rugged
2: landscape, and mm. it's so wild. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a huge area of just you know natural bushland that you know is is just wild, and a lot of it is very unexplored.
1: You can truly get lost in the
2: butch, but
1: then in a few hours, be in the middle of Hobart drinking world-class coffee and going to the Mona Art
2: Gallery, right? That's exactly it in a nutshell. It is an amazing little place, yeah.
1: I will say I've never seen as much roadkill anywhere in the world as I have in Tasmania. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. oh it is, yeah, yeah. You really have to be, drive very, very carefully, uh, particularly at the end of the day and early in the morning. Um, you know, if you're heading off fishing early, you sort of have to take it slowly and be, we've worked out now that if you have your hand on the horn and when you see a wallaby on the side of the road, if you plant your hand on the horn, that that's enough to get them going away from the road and they don't jump on in front of the car. Right, right.
1: Okay. So you start going over there just to fish for fun and then you fall in love. And when do you end up moving there?
2: So it uh, would have been 2011 uh, we decided that we were going to open or start a guiding business in Tasmania. So we headed down there for a, a camping two weeks and travelled around Tassie again back to our, all our old fishing haunts and found ourselves, we kept coming to Deloraine, which is in the sort of central north of Tasmania, and we found that that was a really good base there because it was close to the Meander River and the Mersey River, which are both really well, cool. They were both used in the World Fly Fishing Championships, which were held in Tassie um, at the end of 2019. And then also very close to like an hour's drive up to the the central plateau where there are thousands of lakes that you can fish. A lot of lake fishing, so it was it was very well positioned for us to to start a business there. And at that point, there were no other guides in that area either. So
1: I think this is what is so interesting to me about your story, and I would like to dive into it a little bit as we go through here, or through your timeline. Mm-hmm. You started guiding quite late in life, right?
2: Mm-hmm. And very much so. And was that both mm-hmm. of you? Did you both start guiding late, or had he guided before you? No, no, we were both very late. So uh, I should go back a little bit. So before we actually started out, when we sold our flower export business in Melbourne, we decided that we would have a gap year because all our children had had a gap year. So we uh, took a year off, bought a round-the-world ticket and ended up...
1: Wait, wait. So at this point, you've you've had children. You are, I mean, how, so are you in your 40s? Or are you in your 50s? What, where are you at in...
2: Uh, forty? So,
1: so you're in your 40s. You, you've raised children. You've had a successful business, you've sold it, and yep. okay, and that's got us caught up. So you've got a gap year.
2: Yes, yes. So so we head off to South America, and um, we hired a car in Mendoza and drove all the way down the Andes through all the national parks. And we had a, a, a book that became our Bible, which was called A Trout Bum's Guide to Fly Fishing Patagonia, uh, written by two young American fellows. I can't remember their names. So after fishing all through South America and and um, all through all through Patagonia I should say, we then headed up to Venezuela and went to Los Rocas National Park off Caracas and had two weeks bone fishing there. And then we ended up in North America and fished sort of up the east coast and the Gas Gas Bay Peninsula and all around there. And then we headed over and went to Alaska. Um, and back down and into Montana. And then we sort of got lost in Montana and we ended up staying there for quite a long time and met lots of people and while we were there in, in one crazy sort of moment we ended up seeing a little drift boat that was parked outside the River's Edge Fly Shop in Bozeman in Montana and uh, it was for sale and we sort of thought, wow, that was a beautiful handmade wooden boat And then we worked out that the fellow who built the boat was in the next valley, in the Livingston Paradise Valley. So we went over and saw him, and he was building these other boats and um, beautiful, sort of recurve, handmade wooden drift boats. We thought maybe we'd like to buy one in kit form and take it, you know, build one back in Australia. And he said, Oh, actually, I know someone who's selling one secondhand. So we ended up going and seeing this fellow we rang this fellow and he turned up in the the car park of the hotel that we were staying in at in bozeman with this absolutely amazing drift boat and it was like just like drop dead gorgeous all you could do was just rub your hands down the gunnels and it was amazing and so we thought wow you know and the australian dollar was parity with the u.s dollar at that point in time so we thought why not? We may as well buy this drift boat. <laughs> so we made this guy an offer, but he said, I've got two that are identical. So <laughs> in a mad moment, we ended up buying two drift boats in America. <laughs> then we sort of thought, oh no, what are we going to do now? We've got to get them back to Australia. <laughs> so, but anyway, we managed to get, we'd been, because of our business that we had been in exporting flowers, we had a freight forwarder. So we contacted him and said, "How much would it cost us to get a container to get these drift boats back to Australia?" And he said, "Oh, I can sort it out for you. It's going to be two thousand dollars for a twenty-foot container." And in the end, we sort of thought because Peter's like, you know, well, why don't we get a thirty-foot, a twenty-foot, sorry, a twenty-foot container? We'll get a bigger one, and um, and then we, you know, we can fill it up with other things as well. So. <laughs> anyway we fitted our drift boats in and shipped them back and then it was like well where are we going to set this business up and the the possibilities were for us to set up a guiding business in victoria um where we had there are some great rivers for that you could potentially use a drift boat on um but Victoria at that point in time had been hit by bushfires and and drought and different things and you know we realised that there were some inconsistencies and that Tasmania really had so much more to offer and so much more diversity of fishing and um, really is I'm I'm sure people may not agree with there may be some people who don't agree with me but I believe that it's probably the best fly fishing in Australia, that Australia has, is based in, is in Tasmania. So we sort of thought, well, that's the place to go. So that's why we then headed down there to look for where we might set up a business in Tasmania.
1: Okay. So you may have touched on this and and I may have just missed it. Did you decide to guide before you bought the boats or did you buy the boats and decide to guide?
2: Uh, Well, it was sort of all around the same time. So when we, we sort of, yeah. (laughs) So we had thought that maybe that was something that we could do and then when we found the drift boats it all sort of gelled together nicely so but it was a little bit more like you know most people have a business plan of you know like that what they're going to do and then they go about buying all their business equipment it was more like well we sort of bought the business equipment and then thought well let's build a business around these
1: oh this is so <laughs> this
2: cool this equipment so yeah so it's probably not the logical way of doing things but anyway we i think also, from our travels in that year that we were away, we, we sort of had this feel of what um, a business. I mean, I had been in hospitality prior to that and I think we sort of had this feel of how a business might be. So we wanted to buy like a, or have like a, a lodge where people could come and stay with us and we would host them. Um, so it was really like a, a fully rounded experience that people had. I mean, fishing was very important and we, we offered them really good fishing and guiding, but it was also like hosting them as well. So So that was how our business sort of originally started. So then we you know we found a property in Deloraine that we felt we could renovate to make it you know sort of all blend together nicely. And set about then renovating that property and getting it just how we wanted it and getting all the, you know, going through all the red, red tape that you need to do for that sort of thing, registering boats and, um, and, you know, insurance and all of that sort of thing. So it was quite a big thing to go about doing that has worked really well.
1: One of the number one emails that I get are from people in their 40s who would like to start over, they work in a different industry and they love fishing. And so they want to make the leap and make fly fishing a career. And the natural step is to start guiding. Now, a lot of them are the breadwinner of the family and they because their spouse, he or she may not be into fishing and so it, it's a hard step for them to make because only one can move forward. But in your situation, both you and Peter made the decision together. If you were talking to someone who was thinking about making the same leap, how does that conversation look?
2: Well, I think I, I think for people who are in their 40s that they have many skills that they've bought from other, other parts of their lives. Um, And so blending those things can sometimes work really well together. And, you know, if someone's one person is guiding and one people is hosting and looking after the, you know, the the accommodation side, um, then it could work quite well as a couple, you know, moving into a business like that. There are a lot of benefits. We had, you know, the most amazing people that we would host people from all walks of life who would find themselves at our place together and what we would find was that people would come um and have two or three days with us and by the time they left they weren't clients they were friends that you know you spent time with you spent time on the river with them you spent evenings with them you're guiding all day Or yeah. were you
1: doing, doing the cooking as
2: well <laughs> uh well i did i did have help with that um but yeah they were long days it was tiring yeah. um because you'd be yeah as you can imagine up early um breakfast making lunches getting all the gear organized and out on the river all day and yeah then back cook dinner peter would say about you know sort of 10 30 he'd say oh I'm tired. I've got to go fishing tomorrow, so people sort of scuttle off to bed. But yeah, it was yeah, was pretty full on. So now
1: you you're both guiding but not doing the accommodation?
2: Yes, yeah. Well, when um, this last 18 months has been unusual, of course, with Covid. So really our business sort of there was no business anyway. Uh, so we've sort of then Stepped back and reviewed our situation. Decided, look, from now where we're going to not do the accommodation side anymore. That we'll continue guiding because we love that. But just to you know reduce a little bit of the time pressure on us, we thought we would not do the accommodation side anymore. Fair enough.
1: I, and I, you hear that often with you know certain people. I know when I used to guide and do the lodge thing, it, it wasn't sustainable.
2: You just too yeah. tired. It is. It's very tiring. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to do the part that you really love the most, the guiding and, and really give it your all and, you know, this yeah, I think it's important not to overstress the other side. So. Yep.
1: Absolutely. Well, let's talk about fishing in Tasmania because I know for me, I was really surprised when I moved here And would tell people that I wanted to go trout fishing. I was going to go to New Zealand because that's just what you do, right? I I thought I had no idea. They'd say, oh yeah, well, Tasmania has got great fishing, but you know, they're pretty small fish. So I went to Tasmania to go and experience these small fish. They're not so (laughs) small. I mean, really, I've seen some absolute stompers. You've seen, I've seen fish that have to be 10 pounds. I mean, they're rare, but I've seen some really big
2: fish. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a, a fallacy that the fish are small. I guess in New Zealand I think the fish are like there's maybe fewer of them and they're mostly all, you know, I mean there's a lot of bigger fish in New Zealand, but Tasmania it's um we have across the board there are some some smaller fish but yeah, some as you say some cracking fish you know good fish in the rivers as well as in the lakes
1: And I had heard that some of the best anglers came from Tasmania, which I can also attest to. Some of the best anglers I've fished with have been there. And it's been interesting because it can be quite technical. And so I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit about some of the technical fishing. Mm. Yeah. So what do the rivers primarily look like? And then we'll talk about lakes after rivers, because I think that the lake fishing is world-class in Tasmania.
2: I agree with you. I believe that the fishing in Tasmania is very technical so the rivers that were close, that we we probably spend the most of our time on, the Meander and the Mersey River, they're both tail-race fisheries. A lot of uh, sort of the Meander is a lot of pocket water, probably not necessarily always suitable for sort of nymph under dry. Uh, so occasionally it is. A lot of European nymphing works very well.
1: When you say that a river might not be suitable for um, dry, basically a hopper dropper or dry and a nymph, what would be a situation where that might not be the best choice for someone to use?
2: Uh, so I would say that in the pocket water in the Meander River, where they're very short pockets, that there really isn't enough room to get your dry and get your nymph down, where by European nymphing, you have the opportunity of getting that in and getting it in the current seam where you might find with nymph under dry that you've got your dry in one current seam and your nymph's sort of pulling in a different direction. So I don't really believe it's really the right thing for in-pocket water.
1: So you do a lot of nymph fishing or euro fishing?
2: Yes. When we when we had our, our driftwater lodge, I had a group of competition anglers come and stay with us um, who were competing at that point in the – the National Fly Fishing Championships, which were based on, which were using the Meander River and the Mersey River, which are close, were close to where we were. And one of the fellows, Glenn Eggleton, said to me, have you ever thought about doing competition fishing? And at that point I sort of thought, well, no, I hadn't. And why would I want to turn what I loved into a competition? So that was sort of my original thought. Um, but then I also realized that, that by doing competition fishing, I would, it would increase my, my knowledge of fishing and give me, and I'm sure, you know, improve my techniques and all of that sort of thing. So he had said, look, if you're interested at all, I'd be very happy to take you, um, and teach you some different techniques. So I said, oh, why not? I'm, I'm going to give this a go. So I did. I did spend a bit of time with Glennon. and so from then on, I sort of learned about European nymphing, um, and you know, started doing some competitions. And have you know, I felt like at that point, I sort of thought, wow, I had a lot to learn because there are so many different techniques to learn within the competition fishing. So I I did a, a workshop with uh, Martin Draws, who is who had been a world champion competition fly fisher who was doing um, a workshop in Tasmania so I I did that and sort of went on from there and have been competing ever since so that has been a great yeah great learning curve for me
1: what was your biggest revelation learning how to do the euro nymphing because we sell a masterclass with Clint Goyette who's a who's a championship competitor and it's been amazing watching the results that have been pouring in and, and everybody's picked up something different for you. What was your biggest aha moment?
2: Oh, uh, well, I think what it was, was that how close you can be to those fish. And although you, you know, you may, you've fished over this water before that you can go back and their fish are still there and they're actually not sitting that far away from you and they are quite catchable. Um, so how, often in all those years that I must have walked over fish in a sense and missed all of those fish that were there. So, yeah, I think that was the, the greatest revelation. It's an amazing technique. It is quite incredible um, and, and quite diverse. And I guess also that that now competition fishing has, has sort of taught me that the water that once upon a time I would have maybe just gone from honey hole to honey hole. And now you don't, you fish that in between water, and there are fish there as well. So, and you need to, you know, work out which technique is going to be the right technique to help you catch those fish. Coming up, Karen
1: and I continue our conversation. While I have you here, I'd like to tell you about Athletic Brewing Company. Athletic Brewing Company brews delicious craft beer that just happens to be non alcoholic. As someone who is regularly appointed designated driver, there are times, especially after a long, hot day on the water, where I would like to relax and drink a cold beer after fishing. Athletic Brewing Company is the perfect substitute for those of us who crave an ice-cold beer without needing to worry about alcohol content. In 2020, they donated over $300,000 to trail restoration and backcountry safety through their Two for the Trails program, where 2% of all sales dollars went to maintaining trails and parks. Since they make non-alcoholic beer, they're able to ship it through the mail directly to you, and to sweeten the deal, they're offering free shipping on two six-packs or more. Try their award-winning beer at athleticbrewing.com and use code anchor 20 to get free shipping and 20% off your first order. I was fishing with Daniel Hackett and I was throwing these, trying to throw these laser casts and double hauling. And he goes, no, no, you know, he's a great caster. And he says, do a single haul and open up your loops and you're going to land your fly softer. And he proceeded to just, he should have just been teaching a clinic that day. I mean, he basically was teaching a clinic, showing me just how technical he was fishing and just how soft he could land his dry fly by just casting a little bit different. And it's so funny because, you know, especially we're always taught to cast these laser tight loops and that means you can get through mm. the wind and, and he just, yes, you know, yes. put all of that to through shame. and window. Yeah, it was excellent. Talk to me about the platypus. I think that was another really interesting moment for me when I, I first had seen and learned about the platypus when I was in Tasmania.
2: Yes. Well, there are, there are so many platypus. It's, it's rare for us to go out for a day and not come across a platypus somewhere in the river. What are
1: they though? For people listening right now who have no idea what we're talking about, let's talk a little bit about what they look like and what, what makes them so unique.
2: Well yeah I mean they're they're a mammal but they're a duck bill they have like a duck bill and they generally live in a a, like a little den on the side of the river so so they'll duck dive come up you know between your legs or just in the pool that you're fishing or you know they sort of snaffle around and and eat from what I understand similar to to what trout like nymphs and things like that so yeah, so they're in the same environment. And I, I think the rivers in Tasmania are so healthy and the lakes because you come across them in lakes as well. They, you know, that the, there's a great population of them.
1: Don't they lay eggs?
2: Yes, they do. They're a fascinating animal.
1: The other thing that I thought was unusual was I fished with Greg French on one of those, you know, streams way up in the mountains.
2: And mm-hmm. there
1: was this <laughs> Atlantic salmon pond not far from the main river we were fishing on. And it was full of these 30-pound Atlantic salmon. Is that that normal? Have you heard of this before? No,
2: I haven't. Oh, it must have just been a salmon farm
1: nearby then.
2: Yeah, I don't know.
1: Okay, I thought it was normal for all Tassie streams to have Atlantic salmon, and I was going to ask if they ever escape. No,
2: no, no. Um, Not that I'm aware of, no.
1: Okay, gotcha. So let's go back to them out to the rivers. So
2: do they dam any of the rivers here? Yes, they do. Um, yes. Yeah, so so about oh, sort of 80% of the electricity in Tasmania is hydro. So there's been huge dams built over the years and, you know, the Great Lake in the centre of Tassie is dammed. But now um, I guess it has left many benefits for the fishing industry because, um, a lot of those lakes now are great fishing lakes. Um, and the like, as I said, the Meander River and the Mersey River are both tail-race fisheries. So they now have, you know, environmental flows. So it's really, you know, a good flow for most, you know, for the bulk of the year that is sustainable.
1: The lake fishing is, for me, one of the most impressive things that I've ever seen in fishing. So you've got these enormous... Bodies of water with these amazing deadheads and and cut off gum trees and fallen gum trees, and you can walk out so far into these lakes and still be up to your knees. And the brown trout—I'm assuming the brown trout—I'm sure you'll you'll let me know either way—are yeah. tailing like bonefish, and you're casting,
2: you're sight fishing. It's just like fishing the flats. Yes, yeah, that that's you're exactly right when you sort of. So I think. Tasmania is full of, um, well, it's not full of, but it has thousands of glacial lakes that are just very, very shallow, just as you described. And you can walk the edges and sort of spot fish around the edges, so a little bit like you know spotting bonefish, um, or you can walk out into it and just you know sort of stalk them that way. And a lot of the lakes there, sort of the the brown trout. There's few of them, but the ones that you do see are enormous. All of those little um, glacial lakes are interconnected with small rivulets. And so the trout can sort of move between them um, and sort of make their way around. So it's, yeah, it is quite exceptional, quite amazing. Um, And once again, of course, that fishing is very technical. So how would that look? So
1: you get to this big lake, you see this beautiful yellow tail sticking up. What's the first thing you do?
2: probably drop to your knees and, and, <laughs> and pray <laughs> and pray. just remember to breathe. I, know, I don't know how many clients I'd sort of have to say, breathe. Yeah. <laughs> They're holding their breath as this fish is swimming towards them, you know. Um, but you you really have to remain very, very still and calm and sort of keep low profile and really, you know, sort of, yeah if you can just quietly just pop a fly out in front of it.
1: And then what do you do? Do you wait for it to turn around so it's not facing you?
2: Yeah, yeah. You'd wait until it had yeah sort of swum past or whatever and then just drop a fly quietly in front of it. What about bugs?
1: Because I know that that was the hardest part for me was looking at how still the water was. There wasn't any current. There was a little bit of wind if I was lucky. But for the most part... You know, you didn't know which direction that fish was going to be at any given time. I felt like if my bug or my fly presentation wasn't perfect, I was going to spook it. Do you have to have long long leaders like they they do in New Zealand? Yes, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. very long, delicate leaders um, so that, yeah, you can get that presentation very lightly because they will spook. They'll spook very, very easily. So, yeah, presentation is a huge part of it. And sometimes like an, un, an unweighted nymph might do the trick. If they're sort of not looking up to you might use an unweighted nymph that you can just drop in front of them, just an inch that back. That, that sometimes will work as well. What's the, the major hatch that they have in Tasmania? Well, we have a lot of mayfly. A lot of the lakes are mayfly-driven, a lot of weed growth. Also, I like there's that sort of fishing where you're sort of walking the edges and stalking fish. But we also do a lot of lock-style fishing. So I probably, for myself, I do a lot more lock-style fishing. Somebody – I'm so sorry. I'm so
1: excited you just brought this up. Somebody emailed me the other day to tell me that he's a, a lock-style expert. And I, he actually is, so I stopped rolling my eyes. Yeah. But then I looked it up, and, and I, I don't want to be the one to tell everybody. Can you tell people what lock-style fishing is and, and how it works?
2: Okay. So lock-style fishing, we fish from a boat. Which is drifting, so you're drifting with the wind, um, and we have a sea anchor or a drogue at the back of the boat, so the boat is drifting side on to the wind, drifting downwind. The trout are generally moving upwind because, as you can imagine, they're they're catching the food that's drifting downwind, so they're sort of moving upwind. So we're actually sort of drifting down towards them, um, and with Lock fishing I mean, you can be using many different types of techniques. So you could be um, so what we call static nymphing, which is where you're um, have a, you might have a team of three nymphs um, on a twenty foot leader, so spaced about five feet apart, and you'll cast out and just figure eight retrieve, taking up the slack as the the boat is drifting downwind. So just taking up that slack. So you've cut, made a long cast and you are just figure eight retrieving, just taking up the slack of your leader as you're, the boat's drifting downwind. Um, and you might do a long, slow draw at midway through your retrieve that just lifts your nymphs up in the water. So it, it would lift your nymphs up in the water column as a nymph would be coming up to hatch in the water column. So And a fish might take it at that point in time. So and then just continue that figure eight retrieve and then we'll do a hang, what we call a hang at the end of the of the, your retrieve which is just once again lifting the nymphs up in the water column and just holding them just under the surface of the water um, and often that will be the point that the fish will take it. Another another technique that we use when we're drifting, when we're doing this lockstar fishing is like pulling streamers so you might just cast out with the team of three streamers um, and then do all different types of retrieves so it could be a slow three streamers yes yeah like how that just
1: sounds like a tangled nightmare well it can be can you (laughs)
2: imagine when it's windy as well it can be disastrous but um, it's just a matter in this of keeping very open loops so your flies don't get tangled Um, and with that you might do a roly-poly retrieve so you're you know really smooth long or it might be long strips so just working out what retrieve is suited to the fish at that point in time that what what whether they're aggressively feeding or whether they're just you know not wanting to chase or you've got to try and work that out and work out the depth also so you might use a, a, a di3 or a five, depending on the depth that you think those fish are sitting at at that point in time. What about indicators? Do you ever do it with an indicator? Uh, look, yes, there are times that you use an indicator. So we, <laughs> here's, here's another technique that you might not have heard of. So we do plonking. So plonking is with a big bushy dry fly and you, then you would have two nymphs underneath it, two weighted like tungsten bee nymphs underneath so it's, once again, just a very static um, presentation. So you cast out and you're just watching, waiting for that dry fly to to go under. So <laughs> so that's another one.
1: I would imagine with lock-style niffing, which I've done before, I didn't know that's what it was called, but when I used to guide on this lake, I'd row all the way to one side, mm. drift down, usually just trolling or, or casting a, a leech or something similar. But yep. then I had to row all the way back up. <laughs> And do it yeah. all over again, rather than you know when we go chronomid fishing or fishing midges, we're just what do they call like fishing buzzers? I guess in the UK we put out an anchor on each side of the boat, um, you know the bow and the stern, and then we play <laughs> the wind and we kind of work in that area there and let the fish come to us. So is there an advantage to lock style fishing? Is it just that you cover more water?
2: I think so. I, yes, I think it's that you're covering more water, and also you might be covering. You know, you might find that it's easier to locate fish perhaps because you're covering that water because if the fish are not, you know, actually moving around all the time, they might there might be a drop-off so you might drift over that drop-off and then you have the advantage of coming back to, around and doing that drift again. Yeah. And we don't do that with our drift boats either. <laughs> it's with a boat with an engine. So it's a lot easier to make that move back upwind again.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds right. What was the biggest surprise that you had moving to Tasmania when it came to trout fishing? Was there a big difference to the fishing that you'd done in South America, the fishing that you'd done even in in
2: Victoria compared to Victoria fishing in Victoria, fishing the rivers in Tasmania? There are no, there's no one there. It's like going to your own private river a lot of the time because there are no other anglers there. Very few anglers on the rivers. Um, I think a lot of most people will go to Tasmania to fish the lakes because the lakes are sort of world class, but the rivers are, are sort of quite.
1: Ah, oh, that's opposite to what I would have thought. I would have thought
2: that the rivers
1: had more pressure than the lakes.
2: No, 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 no. Not not in Tasmania. In Victoria, yes, the rivers here are pressured. Um, there's a lot of anglers. On, you know, it's hard to find a spot sometimes on some of the rivers in Victoria, but. But Tassie, most of the time, you can always find somewhere. There's always somewhere. So yeah, it's great from that point. I think I think the difference we found from Tasmania and say America is the numbers of fish. That there are much less fish in the rivers in Tasmania, and I think maybe that's part of the reason why it is quite technical too. Um, that they're not the, the quantities of fish where I think in some Ameri- rivers in America, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's like two and a half thousand fish per mile. Whereas in Tasmania, there might be 250.
1: Yeah, it, that's a big difference. That's a big difference. When I had gone, I'd been over to the, I cannot remember what it's called, but I'm sure you will. The History of Fly Fishing. There's a museum there.
2: Uh, in Cl- At Clarendon. Yeah.
1: It's absolutely spectacular. Yes. Do, you know any of, do you know any of the history of the fish in Tasmania? Didn't, didn't all of
2: Australia's trout come from, didn't it start in Tasmania? It did, yes, yes, and New Zealand. So, well, so from what I understand in 1864 was when the first successful trip of bringing trout roe um, to Tasmania, but they were actually bringing salmon um, they had tried; it was the third attempt to bring salmon eggs to Tasmania, and the first two had failed. And they realised that with the third one that they they had been packing the eggs in moss and with ice and in little wooden boxes with drip, with air holes. But then they realised that it actually had to be live moss, not dead moss, for the the eggs. So they, when they got the recipe right, and it took them three months, and they bought, they finally got the eggs to the mainland and then were able then to get them down to Tasmania and they had salmon eggs and at the last minute apparently some fellows in London had said why don't you take some brown trout with you as well some trout eggs so they did and when they got to Tasmania they took them to the hatchery at the salmon ponds and grew them on and they then put them into the into, when they had grown to sufficient size they popped them into the Plenty River and for the, so the story goes that the salmon went out to sea and never came back and the brown trout stayed so we have this amazing brown trout that since that time they they've not grown hatchery fish they're natural they haven't yeah. they haven't had to hatch them at all well not from brood stock they haven't used brood stock so they've, they've captured wild trout and stripped the eggs and grown those eggs on. So there's not been that, you know, the hatchery stock that they've used. Yeah, right. So, yeah, which is quite amazing. So that's why, you know, um, and now they don't even do, now they don't do that. They, they um, relocate fish now. So when the trout are spawning in the Great Lake and they run up the Leowinne Canal, or some of the other rivers that run into the Great Lake, they they then just relocate those trout to other waters that need need stocking.
1: With the moss, did it have to be alive because of oxygen? Yes. Yeah,
2: I'm pretty sure that's the reason. Yes.
1: What's the biggest fish you have seen while guiding?
2: Oh, probably uh, eight pound, I suppose. That's a big fish. Which is, it's a big fish, yeah, yes. And, I mean, that's sort of quite, it's quite exceptional and, and quite rare. Um, I think, you know, standard size, standard size is probably, I don't know, probably two, three, two or three pound fish as sort of, you know, 20 inches, 20, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of used to talking in centimetres, so.
1: But, yeah, I'd say two, two to three
2: pounds. Yeah, two to, to three pounds. pounds, yeah, would be pretty normal. Yeah. What about rainbows? Are there rainbows there? Yeah, there are rainbows. in Not in all waters, um, but there are some rainbows about, yeah. Some of our rivers have some good one to two pound rainbows. Put on a pretty good fight. Right.
1: Okay. So I guess one of my last questions just about the fishery itself is a selfish one. I'm, I'm trying to book a trip to come in with Adelaide. Mm-hmm. The two of us want to come fishing. And from what I understand, right now it's May 3rd. I hear that we've missed it. So when when should we come in to have a shot at decent fishing?
2: Uh, look, I would say um, probably November is a good time. When you know early season, um, November, sort of November December, where the hatches are really just getting mayfly hatches, getting really going. Um, so there's some excellent fishing on the rivers and some of the, it's the just the lakes are just starting to. Hit their good time um up until like August September, October is sort of pretty tough up in the highlands. It can be pretty cold and you know not easy, yeah, I would say probably yeah, November, December or March. You get snow
1: in Tasmania right? Yes,
2: yeah, yeah, snow is up in the highlands. so any time from any time of year really, you can have. we had we had snow in January this past January so but mostly it's at that summertime. time of, I know mostly at that time of year it doesn't hang around it's just sort of there and it's gone but um, it, yeah the highlands can be pretty brutal at times
1: so moving forward, and I'll let you get back to your night, if people want to come and fish with you and Peter, I understand that it's a really weird time right now with COVID and mm. we can't get to you. I mean, even we couldn't get to you here from New South Wales, which must have been terribly frustrating for you guys. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yes. As it is for everybody. Um, we're just very fortunate, I think, that we were in, you know, pretty safe in Tassie. As compared to the rest yeah, of the world, I'll say yeah. I think
1: you're probably in, yeah. in the safest place on the planet I think over there. So. Yeah. So when can people come and book with you? Are we just waiting for
2: borders to open? Can people from mainland Australia get to you? Yeah, people from mainland, yes, definitely. We, you know, we have have guided up until the you know the end of the season just this week. But um, yeah, we're taking bookings now for next season. So things are moving along and it, we're really just waiting to see what happens with international borders when they when they open up again
1: would you uh, would you do it again how's your happiness level compared to how it was before
2: oh yeah i'd do it again yeah no it's great it is really good hard work but great rewarding and that concludes this episode of anchored thank you for
1: listening